Welcome to the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast, where we discuss the world of IT and cybersecurity. Don't be left in the dark about what's going on in the world around you. Here is your host, Joe Gray. Welcome to another episode of the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Gray. Before we get started, the thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of my employers or my guest this evening, Leslie Carhart's employers, past, present, or future. With that being said, our guest this evening is Leslie Carhart, the one and only Hacks for Pancakes. She's an incident response team lead with an undisclosed organization in an undisclosed uh, location, uh, in an undisclosed bunker, in undisclosed uh country. Uh, with that being said, she is a veteran. She runs the Veteran InfoSec Tickets uh, Twitter, and she maintains her blog at uh, Tis, uh, uh, Tisiphony. Had to get that right. I will definitely edit that to make it sound good. Uh, with that being said, though, uh, she's considered to be an information security powerhouse and a mainstay of Twitter. She holds uh, various uh, GX certifications and is on the advisory board. Hi, Leslie. How's it going? Fantastic. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time out of your day to record uh, this fantastic first episode of 2017 uh, to get things started off on the right foot. In this episode, uh, we're going to talk about uh, having a successful experience uh, taking SANS courses and how to dominate uh, taking GIAC exams, as well as our personal advice for being successful in information security. Uh, before we get started, I uh, hate to be the bearer of bad news, but uh, uh, <clears throat> recently we lost uh, Princess Leia, Carrie Fisher, and uh, one of our own, uh, Jack Daniel, uh, told us on Twitter that his uh, wife uh, passed away. So uh, the Fisher and Daniel families are both in our thoughts and prayers. Our thoughts go out to them. So uh, with that being said, uh, this would be the time we would normally talk about the news, but the news is kind of uh, stale right now, uh, right around the Christmas uh, time frame. So there's just not a, a whole lot of up-and-coming, cutting-edge things to talk about. So we're going to talk about predictions for 2017. Uh, so to start off, what do you think the biggest prediction for 2017 will be, Leslie? Well, I have kind of a theme for my predictions, and that theme is uh, reaching a breaking point. And um, what I mean by that is that some of the problems that we've been coasting through and then struggling through and then duct taping our way through for the last 10 to 20 years are going to come to a head in such a way that we absolutely have to deal with them and our government has to deal with them and uh, our management and our, the people who pay our bills are going to have to make some decisions finally. And that doesn't mean that every security problem is going to get fixed in 2017. It just means that some of them are going to get really, really bad to a point where risk managers and the people who cut the checks are going to say that it's worth spending money to fix things in certain places where there's money to spend. So my first prediction is that the problem of distributed denial of service attacks and denial of service in general is going to continue to get worse. And the capacity of that those types of attacks to get worse are is going to increasingly impact the critical infrastructure of the internet and potentially even things like ICS SCADA, so actual physical critical infrastructure. Um, 
And the cause of that, of course, we know with the growth of the Mirai botnet using uh, IoT home devices, that problem hasn't been solved in any manner. Um, the, the specific devices that were used in that one attack are kind of being dealt with, but there's a up-and-coming market for home devices that are internet-connected, and many, many of them are vulnerable. So we're going to continue to see larger and li larger-scale DDoS attacks, and companies are going to have to learn new ways to mitigate those and build better redundancy and get away from legacy systems that they've been subsisting on for a decade or two decades. Absolutely. And with the Internet of Things, obviously, this this deals with a cultural issue. Uh, first uh, to, to tackle the first cultural issue, and that is developers, even at the level from edu you know when they're when they're getting the formal education they are taught that security is a hindrance security is a nuisance uh, it is an afterthought uh, they just want to say no the primary objective is to get a functional product to market at or ahead of schedule at or below cost uh, especially when in uh, comparison to their competitor so obviously that's problematic from that cultural perspective but as security professionals, I think we need to address that cultural issue, and that is security too often has a habit of saying no or just stonewalling everything. When I think really security professionals should learn better communication, better redirection, and honestly understand development better so that we can make better recommendations to the developers themselves. Uh, I would love to see something like Sec DevOps. Uh, or DevSecOps, whatever you want to call it. But uh, in that regard, I think that would be a step in the right direction because what we're talking about with the Internet of Things, we're talking devices that have a longer effective life period than a computer. A computer, three to five years. When you're talking closed-circuit TV systems or even smart refrigerators, you're talking seven to 25 years or more. So there's definitely a problem there, and I think... Uh, to use the Titanic analogy, uh, with the Mirai botnet, we saw the visible part of the iceberg. What we're not seeing is the part that's three to five times bigger underneath the the ocean. What are your thoughts? I think that might even be a little conservative. Uh, I, there's a vast and growing population of Internet of Things devices. And the problem is that man manufacturers want to make things cheaply. Um, they cut corners. They are trying to beat out competitors at very, very low profit margins. So um, we're going to continue to see these devices pop up that, as you said, developers have not built security into for various reasons. And in some ways, building a better developer education is a solution and trying to convince these developers to build security in by either force through um, legislation and regulation or through more benign encouragement methods um, is, is a one solution. But on the other hand, we're just going to have to get used to these attacks occurring and we're going to have to find better ways to mitigate them. And one of the reasons we're so vulnerable is that the, in, the internet infrastructure itself in some ways is, is vulnerable to these types of attacks because we're using protocols that were not built for uh, internet at this scale still. Absolutely. And would you tend to agree with Bruce Schneier and uh, his assessment that the government should step in and do something as opposed to waiting until something catastrophic happens? He he said something akin to 9-11 in terms of 
there were things the government could have done to uh, soften the blow or prevent 9-11, but they didn't. So then they had to come up with something as a reactionary measure and then obviously uh, in a Bruce Schneier style manner uh, goes into some uh, <clears throat> critique of say the Patriot Act. Uh, would you tend to agree that now is the time to do so while we have the calm heads and the capability to think rationally and do so? Preventative action is always better than reactive action, but unfortunately, reactive action is usually the one that gets the dollars in terms of security. So we should keep trying. We should absolutely absolutely keep trying to try to encourage our lawmakers and our CEOs and our bosses to build better proactive security in it at reasonable cost for the risk. Um, and painting that risk management and that uh, cyber threat insurance quantitative picture for our management and our directors and our legislators is a critical piece to trying to sell that. Absolutely. So moving on to my first prediction, I think that in 2017, we're going to see a data breach that is going to make Yahoo look like a drop in the bucket. And when I say this, I'm not necessarily referring to the number of records that are compromised, but just the catastrophic nature of the actual data breach in terms of sensitivity, records, and applicability, and obviously the use and misuse of the records. What are your thoughts? That's definitely a possibility. And again, as I said previously, my theme for 2017 is reaching a breaking point. And uh, we're, we're certainly going to see as, especially when we're looking at businesses that have been around for a really long time and who have been on the internet for a really long time, they're especially vulnerable because they're building systems on top of systems on top of legacy, legacy systems. And they don't always invest everything in totally rebuilding their security to be modern. So there's going to be continue to be vulnerability in large scale legacy behemoths like Yahoo um, until they improve their security um, from these vestigial pieces of 1990s technology and policies from the 1990s. Um, and it's entirely possible that we'll see another breach that's even bigger than Yahoo. Excellent. Um, what would your next prediction be? Okay, so my next prediction goes off on a little bit different tangent, and of course it has to do with politics that nobody wants to talk about right now. And that is uh, cloud providers and social media companies um, and their handling of mass quantities of personal data that can be restricted to the casual internet observer, but law enforcement and government agencies might ask for in terms of monitoring, surveillance, or investigations. And that also includes encryption. Um, and right now, at this point, before the really we get into the year, it's impossible for me to say which way that's going to tip right now. There's a lot of speculation both ways. But at this point, we don't know too much about the people who are going to be making cyber policy in the new U.S. White House administration or the administrations of various governments around the world that are players in the cyberspace and are getting new governments or in the near future. So depending on whether those governments tend to more want more surveillance or 
tend more towards personal privacy. We're going to see large-scale companies that collect data respond in turn. And we've already kind of seen this in terms of like companies discussing data retention and warrant canaries and uh, the potential to encrypt our personal devices. Um, companies are, especially cutting edge Silicon Valley companies, they're, they're generally pretty pro-privacy and they offer us a lot of tools to secure our data. However, we're in an unprecedented state of data collection that's never occurred in humankind before. Um, massive quantities about where we are and what we say and what we do and what we buy is collected by advertising companies and our email providers and every aspect of our life, our credit card providers and governments for various reasons with various levels of good intentions or nefarious intentions want that data. So we're going to run into situations where companies start deciding whether they're going to continue to retain that data for as long or retain as much data, depending on the way that the global political situation turns in 2017. Okay. And I'm asking this question in a, in a, Nonpartisan manner, but with the Trump administration seeing as his business was breached in 2015, obviously we don't know a whole lot in terms of appointments. Could you see it going in a really positive swing or uh, a, a terribly negative swing just based on you know his arguable business acumen? The problem with predicting what presidential administrations are going to do is predicting the amount of influence that presidential advisors have on the president and their various connections in business and industry. And that's the thing that we can't really predict yet. Um, I think that there are going to be people who are pro-privacy, who have our president's ear. Um, as we've seen, Silicon Valley leaders are definitely having discussions, and they tend to be pro-encryption, pro-privacy. And then there are large contingents of uh, pundits who are very pro-backdoors and pro-surveillance, even against normal citizenry, not necessarily criminals, um, for reasons of state security. And I think which way we tip, we're going to tip one way pretty heavily, but it's going to depend on which one of those voices is louder and more um, accepted by the incoming administration. And I hope that those that are in the point uh, in the positions of the most influence have actually read 1984 and they understand that it's not an instruction manual uh, just to get that political jab out there. But in terms um, of encryption, you do have to feel some empathy for the law enforcement agencies who are dealing with these devices. Um, we have, uh, just to play devil's advocate, there's murder cases where a digital device could provide the incriminating evidence to put somebody in jail that nothing else could. And the device is encrypted. And we have built encryption that is uncrackable by even law enforcement agencies. So you can understand the perspective of the law enforcement agencies who want that phone decrypted. But oh, that fully, doesn't necessarily I, make it right in terms of personal privacy. Oh, I fully understand. And, and I respect and agree with that. 
the problem I see is if you create a backdoor for one organization, it's going to get discovered and reused by unauthorized organizations. Absolutely. And that's that's my main objection and problem with it. Backdoors just don't work. They they create too significant of a vulnerability in encryption. So Absolutely. Um, so with with that specific part being said, I just saw on Twitter today that the key to cracking a murder case is actually uh, it's I think it's an Amazon Echo or an Echo yeah, Dot. I saw that. And the government came to Amazon and Amazon's like Sorry, uh, I'm pretty sure the response was sorry, get a warrant, but uh, that didn't fit the uh, subject uh, or the title of the article, and it's not conducive to good clickbait. So, of course, you know, obviously they're not going to tell the whole story on that. But that's still very interesting because it is, but we're, we're putting these the, surveillance devices out there and law enforcement are going, is going to want them, and this is the kind of case that could go up to the Supreme Court. Absolutely, and this is – Basically, in my opinion, kind of Apple versus the FBI 2.0. Um, obviously, uh, depending on what else is happening in the world uh, through the coming weeks and months, we're going to see more or less of this. And then obviously, as we near uh, the latter part, the later part of January towards inauguration, I don't think you're going to hear about a lot of this kind of stuff. But, you know, while we're or while we're on the rant of government, one thing I would like to see in 2017 is the federal CISO. I would like to see that position moved into a role outside of the office of manpower and budget. Right now, the position basically just oversees uh, budgetary type things for InfoSec, which it, a gross generalization of it would probably be uh, the role approves budgets for people to buy blinky boxes. When Honestly, the culture kind of needs to change, and if the position were in a in somewhere in the chain of command that had a little bit more teeth, if you will, it could actually provide better oversight for uh, developing the skills and talent and the culture and techniques necessary to make the United States more viable in the information and cybersecurity space. Would you tend to agree with that? I do tend to agree with that. Um, of course we're dealing with a huge, huge organization. One of the largest, let's call it a companies in the world. Uh, the U S government is, is a massive company and it deals with the same problems as any other very large organization, which is it's hard to get technical people who have experience in their field into the leadership position sometimes. Um, but I think that Although the person who's in the federal government CISO position has to be able to manage money and manage people, it would be extremely beneficial to have somebody there who has security knowledge and can push things in the right direction. Absolutely. And my final prediction for 2017 is I think we're going to see a lot more social engineering, a lot more insider threat, and I don't think malware is going to die. What are your thoughts? I'm sorry, not malware. Antivirus, malware protection. I don't think it's going to die. No, what no matter you? no matter what Netflix thinks, I don't think antivirus is going to die in 2017. Um, although I commend them for trying. Um, yeah, uh, insider threats definitely. Um, that's the human condition. Once one person sees, have you ever seen the elevator experiment where where the people all face the wrong direction in the elevator, and the one person is a subject in the middle? Have you seen that? 
Uh, I've not seen that specifically, but when I was in the Navy and we would line up in formation to march somewhere uh, in submarine school, uh, one person before we formally got into ranks would start staring and pointing at something and we would watch everyone around this person start to look off in that direction until finally the entire formation was doing it. And then somebody would come out and be like, what are you guys looking at? There's nothing over there. So that's the human condition. I mean, once one person sees somebody do something, it becomes more and more and more appropriate to them. So we are in the age of whistleblowers and leakers. And uh, for better or for worse, depending on where they are and what they're leaking. Um, And that's something we're going to have to deal with, especially as security professionals, is insider threats are a huge issue for us. Um, And it's something that we're going to have to really reshape our thinking about to deal with. Um, as far as antivirus goes, antivirus is a level of defense in depth and it's not a fail, it's not a foolproof, um, defense mechanism. It's, it's just one layer and it does protect against some low lying threats. So it's useful. And until it not, it's no longer useful as an element of defense in depth, we're going to keep seeing it in use. I cannot agree more because at the end of the day, it is going to get the low hanging fruit and your more advanced solutions, your EDR, your IDR solutions, uh, your next gen malware protection suites, they're going to get your more advanced. Oh, of course. Um, It wouldn't, it wouldn't be an information security podcast without either advanced persistent, something that is not security, obviously by the title or next gen something. Um, But with that being said, they can get a little bit more of the, more advanced stuff. But at the end of the day, if someone is truly targeting you or your organization, they're going to find a way in. They're going to write something that has never been seen before, or they're going to social engineer your people. There was a a parable about that that was told in one of my, uh, back in the dark ages when I was in college, uh, one of my information security classes. And it went like, um, Somebody wants to break into your house and you uh, you lock the doorknob. It stops people who walk by and they uh, try some doors. Um, but a determined attacker is still going to, you know, like push the door a little harder and push it in, kick it in. And you close the deadbolt. Kicking windows, yeah, cut yeah, a hole in the you, roof. You, we want to deter that. The, the, the more determined guy, you, you put the deadbolt on too, but then they break a window. And uh, you really want to deter people from breaking into your house. You put in the nice security system, blinking lights, somebody on call, you know, all that fancy crap. Uh, but then the guy gets tired to kill you. It's not going to stop him. But it stopped all those other people. Um, so unless a hitman's coming to kill you, you know, you're still doing a lot of good. And honestly, that relates to one of my favorite information security books called Time-Based Security. And... Basically, the focus of that book is you build your security defenses in such a way that you can protect your organization until you can identify the threat and neutralize it. You're not building Fort Knox for your information security. You're building what you can do within your budget and within your detection parameters. Uh, the book, it's uh, it was written in 1999. So it's coming up on 20 years old, but the idea itself transcends 1999. Oh, yeah, that's fabulous. Uh, so do you have any uh, other predictions you want to provide, or uh, do would you like to move on? 
I think we can move on. Okay. And with that being said, uh, sit tight. We're going to take our first break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, having success in SANS courses oh and dominating your GEAC exams. Stay tuned. Are you looking for a place to advertise to the unique audience of IT security professionals and enthusiasts? Look no further. Advanced Persistent Security is seeking sponsors. This slot could be yours. Contact sales at advancedpersistentsecurity.net for more information. And we're back from our break. Uh, so far, uh, we have introduced uh, Leslie Carhart and we've provided some predictions for 2017 with this being the first episode of 2017. Uh, with that being said, part of her fame and notoriety in the InfoSec community comes from her willingness to help mentor the up-and-coming security professionals. And as she is most well-known, uh, at least in the Atlanta area, from people I've talked to, not discounting any of her other work, uh, from her blog posts about how to do exceptionally well at uh, your SANS training and your subsequent uh, GAC certifications. Uh, listeners, she is definitely a person to listen to because she has several certifications to include GCIH, GPIN, GCFE, and by some accounts, uh, from what some people who have taken it have told me, uh, GRIM, GRIM, which is reverse engineering malware. Um, she's also on the advisory board, which means that she nearly aced uh, one or more of those exams. Uh, so with that being said, share with us your wisdom. Okay. Um, so I did write a blog post about this about a year and a half ago. Uh, because I kept getting asked, because I, I ended up coming out of SANS tests with really, really nice indices. And um, I don't know how, how deep you want to get into this, but the fundamentals of what you need to know about GEAC examinations is, first of all, they are intended to be taken in conjunctions with a SANS course, either a virtual or in-person SANS course. Um, so the best books to have to study for the test are the SANS books. And those books can be used. It's an open book, open note test. They could be used in the test. However, the uh, GEC exams and the SANS books do not have an index. They don't have a table of contents really much more than a cursory thing. So if you want to be able to look up and really only have time to do like a question every 30 seconds in, in most tests, uh, the number of questions and the length of the test vary, but usually ends up being like under 30 second 30 seconds a question. So the best way to open book, open note it after you study and you take the pretest is to build a really, really good index to look things up when you don't know them. And uh, so basically what I made was something called the pancake system, which is just basically what I've been doing for years and years to pass GIAC exams. And um, it's a very colorful method of tabbing out the books so you can easily find sections and then making it a color-coded index that refers to both keywords and sections and tools and um, all the other notations that are critical when you're taking a GEC exam. So you can go check, check that out. It's on my blog, tosiphony.net, and I've got a link to it at the top left-hand corner of the screen. Um, I will advise the other things about taking GEC tests that are really important. Um, do take your practice tests. You get two of them with every exam. And you can also um, get them from friends if they don't use them before their tests. You can technically get more pretests if you can talk somebody out of one. Um, take those. I, 
I think you can actually purchase more as well. Is that correct? I'm not sure. I've never tried. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they offered a service like that. But um, definitely if you get on like the SANS mailing list, you can ask people for them um, and they can give you, they can send them to your email address. Um, so take those tests. I like to take one like pretty much after I've read all the books and just get a basic idea of what I know and then take another one once I've studied really hard and made an index and highlighted and made my books pretty um, before I took the actual test to know for sure that I was looking towards a passing score, a good score. So those are really important. Um, people sometimes message me and they're like, well, first of all, there's a really strict code of ethics on the GX test. So you can't tell people what's on the test. You can't uh, share test questions with people. Um, so people ask me for that and I just tell them to, to go away and eat an ice cream. But uh, people also ask me, can I go to like Amazon and buy a book and take the GEAC test? And for some of the tests, that's possible, especially the ones that are more like general security knowledge. But when you get into stuff like GRAM and, uh, you know, like the more advanced pen testing classes, the really in-depth, meaty technical stuff, there's enough specific tools in there and um, commands, etc., that it's really hard to buy a book. And the tests change all the time. So the book that was written a year ago to study for that GX certification probably isn't current and probably doesn't re uh, reflect what's on the test anymore. So the best thing to do is use the SANS, book, SANS books and the SANS pretests. Absolutely. When I took my GCIH test recently, I had a binder with indices for each book. And then I had a lot of the SANS cheat sheets like the PowerShell, the Python, uh, intrusion uh, detection checklist, uh, NMAP. And then the only non-SANS product I took in, which in a way it kind of is a SANS product because Joe Vest is associated with SANS, mm -hmm. uh, was, was the RTFM, the Red Team Field Manual. Yeah, that's always and, a good book to have. I recommend that book to everybody. It's getting a little out of date, but everybody should have a copy. It's like, what, it's like $15 on Amazon? Go buy RTFM. Absolutely. And there's a blue team field manual that's pretty uh, accurate when you're talking about the incident response perspective. But I will say, uh, from my experience, the books covered basically everything that was in, in the blue team field manual. So there was very little... Uh, additional value for me, although I did have it in, in the testing center when Personally, I took it. Personally, I would rather have the SANS cheat sheets, which are downloadable on the SANS websites, by the way. Um, I would Absolutely. rather have those in the blue team field manual because those, like the forensics and the incident response cheat sheets that SANS gives out are terrific. They are absolutely fantastic. And they are updated pretty frequently as yeah. well, just like the courses. <clears throat> So, um, what kind of, what tools for success would you recommend in actually selecting and taking a SANS course, aside from the big elephant in the room of how do you get the budget, which basically you either scrounge 5600 and I think $20, or you get an employer to pay for it, which is pretty much the preferred method. Um, well, there's once more you've methods actually, than that. Um, so first of all, there's oh, of multiple different kinds of SANS courses. There's the virtual training, there's community SANS, um, and then there's the, uh, the local mentor, the local mentoring groups where you take the course over a longer period of time with a local mentor and you kind of self-study it. 
So those vary in cost. And then you can also um, be a red apron at the events. And that's kind of a work study program. And it is kind of competitive, especially depending on which event it's for. But that brings your SANS tuition down significantly. Um, Very, very notably. You can't use um, GI Bill for SANS courses, but you can use them for GI Bill. You can use GI Bill if you're going for their master's degree. So that is an option too. And I want to get a quick shameless plug in here. Uh, People in and around Eastern Tennessee, I'm going to be running a Security 504, uh, which is Hacker Tools, Techniques, Exploits, and Incident Handling mentor course uh, in late March and early April. Uh, I don't recall the exact date. It meets twice weekly for three hours a day. Take a look at the SANS website uh, for that, uh, for additional information. Uh, I do know that the cost is lower than the traditional six-day course that's about $5,600. I believe this is uh, $4,300. We don't have a specific venue set up yet, but I think we have one uh, that's provided a soft yes. So uh, if you want more information about that, you can email me at podcast at advancedpersistentsecurity.net. We're not being get- uh, we have we're not being compensated by Sands to give this wonderful plug for their for their products and services. Um, Absolutely not. They really are a very good training institution, and uh, I would recommend um, yes, take his class. Um, do give some thought about the instructors of your class, though. Um, like his, look at their resumes, look at their expertise. His is, of course, commendable, but. You know, you want to you wanna make a decision. Do you want to take the class with a person that works at X company who might have a certain perspective or Y government agency who might have a different perspective or even spend the money to go take the class with the person who wrote the textbooks? Um, so that's exactly. totally a consideration too. Absolutely. The only the only caution I would provide with taking a course with a course author and, and this really isn't against the course authors themselves. It's just they tend to have larger course size. And with that, if you learn best in a smaller, intimate setting, it may not be the best uh, route for you to go. You got it. So just keep that in mind. That's not to say that uh, taking 504 with uh, John Strander at SCOTUS is a bad idea. It's just if you're one of those people that need the small classroom environment of 10 to 15 students taking it at Sandsfire or Sands Las Vegas or DFIR is probably not the best idea for you. On the other hand, you get the benefit of going to a lot of talks at night because they usually schedule the nights pretty full of uh, Sands at night talks and lectures and classes. So, and, and it's also a good networking opportunity. So if you like being in that bustling environment and you want to talk to a lot of people and you like being in a big class with big groups, then maybe those events are your thing. Absolutely. And this just goes to prove there's no absolute right or wrong answer for everything. These are all considerations you need to take uh, into account. Uh, With that being said, uh, definitely check out uh, sands.org and see what is in your area or areas that you know you could easily get to and uh, take a look at which instructors are teaching. Uh, I've taken courses under two different instructors. Uh, I took Audit 507 under Dave Holzer, which is pretty much the only guy who teaches Audit 507. He's also the course author. Um, That corresponds to GSNA, which, unless you work for the Department of Defense, is kind of 
I'm not going to say irrelevant, but the rest of the world prefers uh, CISA over GSNA for the most part, although GSNA is a little bit more technical. Uh, for GCIH, I took it under Chris Pizer, uh, and uh, he's just an excellent instructor in my opinion. Uh, it was uh, at Sands Atlanta, and I think we had less than 20 people in the class. So again, that intimate setting, but that's that's not to say that any one instructor is better than any other for any generic reason, you know, but either way. Um, so let's kind of go into the, the, the SANS uh, blue team and red team pipeline for a moment. So <clears throat> SANS offers both DFIR, digital forensics and incident response and penetration testing curriculum. Uh, they have a few entry-level uh, classes as well, like Security 301 and 401. And then you have uh, 503, which is Intrusion Analysis. And then you have what I teach, 504, the Incident Handling Course, which by many accounts is the crossroads of pen test and DFIR. It's kind of the starting point for both. Uh, what are your thoughts with this, Leslie? Uh, personally, I usually send... Um after they complete other agencies' certifications, um, I usually send my analysts to 504 first. Um, I usually also require them to take 503. And keep in mind, I'm talking from the blue team perspective since I run an IR team and I work in a SOC. So I'm talking about SOC analysts and the basics that tier one people should know. So they pretty much all have to do 504. Um, and 504 is a great, like, stepping stone off of like say security plus like you know the buzzwords you know what devices are you know your ports and protocols and now you want to dive into a little bit more theory but you don't want to go like as far as sysup um it's a good entry level certification for people who are really dedicated to security tier one or maybe tier two wise and then after that um I start going the forensics route and people have some options at that, that point. They can go the um, pure forensics track, which is like the uh, GCFE, GCFA route. And uh, the, those are kind of one class that's been divided into two because there's so much material now. Um, the GCFE is, I believe that's 408. Um, that's more Windows forensics, kind of more like e-discovery stuff, how to recover files off of a Windows operating system, go through go through the registry, go through browser history, etc. What different parts of Windows do, um, and then there is the following class, the GCFA, which is 508, and that's a lot more in depth. Uh, there's some memory forensics in that. There's some disk level forensics, um, and you're basically going directly from one to the other. They are very integrated curriculums, so. It's a good idea to do them in a row. That's what they suggest in the page to to um, treat a, five, a 408 as a prerequisite for a 508. Um, there's also GRAM, which is uh, malware reversing, which is really critical for people who want to do more heuristic and code level analysis. Of course, it's only getting your feet wet as far as like the code level analysis stuff goes. Um, but if you come in there with a basic knowledge of assembly, you can learn a lot about malware in that class. Um, but then on the other hand, you have the red team track. And, and before we go to the red team, let's talk a little bit more about the blue. Sure. So would you agree that 504 loosely 
corresponds to certified ethical hacker per se in terms of it's a technical certification, um, but it kind of covers a lot of the same stuff just from a different perspective. Oh, man, you know how I feel about CEH. Um, I had to do it. I, hate, I had to do I it. I hate relating the two because I think that GCIH is so much more valuable, but... Um, I, I tend to agree, but... the but... same, like, level of skill, yeah. The same level of skill required to go in and take it and study for it, yeah. It's, um... Okay. Yeah, and, like, from my experience dealing with CEH, a lot of that is download this tool and run insider or what is NC minus L minus P four, 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 one twenty seven zero zero one. What does that mean? Uh, that's the type of question you're going to see for like ethical hacker. Whereas with GCI, you're going to see things that are more in terms of here's a scenario based thing. Uh, you're trying to do a persistent listener. Uh, what switches might you use with it's Netcat? It's a little more conceptual, which is what I like about SANS classes. Um, and oh, I recommend them above other certifications at that level of skill because they make you think about problems instead of just typing in commands. Um, Absolutely. And with 508, uh, that one actually now features uh, some threat hunting in it. Is that correct? There is a dedicated threat hunting summit now, actually. And I was on the CFP team for that, um, which was absolutely fabulous recently. Um, So threat hunting is definitely an up-and-coming field, niche. Uh, I don't know. Um, But uh, it's a critical part of doing our blue team work. So. Absolutely. And there are a few SANS courses that do not have certifications on the blue team side, yep. like Mac Forensics, Mobile Forensics. And then there's also a Network Forensics course that I think might have one. I'm not sure. It does now. And what happens a lot with them is they will t- have a class out, they'll beta it, they will put a few classes through it. And then a year or a year and a half later, they'll do a certification, but everybody's grandfathered in usually. So if you took the class a year ago and then they make a certification later, you can still pay the same amount and go take it as if you had done them both at the same time. Which may or may not work to your advantage because of how rapidly the course changes. Yeah. But it's always worth a shot though. Absolutely. Um, Okay. Now let's go ahead and shift over to the red team. So... Obviously, with Red Team, we're talking about uh, pen testing uh, because, yeah, everyone wants to pwn everything, correct? Yeah, it's the, that's the sexy side of security is the pen testing stuff, especially the physical pen testing side of things. Um, that's what everybody wants to do when they like say they want to get into security. They want to like research exploits or they want to break into banks. Um, so... Um, yeah, the SANS pen testing curriculum is fantastic, and it will definitely give you tools to succeed if you've got the right mentality to do that job. Um, I highly recommend that everybody in blue team gets GPEN at a minimum, because that's just like basics. Like that's how does a hacker think about breaking into a network? Um, I think it's so crucial to be able to sit on that side of things and understand how you're going to do reconnaissance and how you're going to map out a target network and what constraints a pen test is done within legally too. Absolutely. So, um, that's very, very And actually, I think with the time. rise of the cloud and web applications, I would almost argue that uh, web app pen testing uh, 542 would be another highly valuable course for any blue teamer. Absolutely. Just because... Do as much purple teaming as you can. Oh, absolutely. And... 
you know, I don't want to get too off topic, but I, I want to get your cut on this. Is it possible for someone to be a true purple teamer? It's really hard. Um, I've known a lot of people who have gotten into positions that have been advertised as purple team. And I think that's a copyrighted or trademark term now, so I'm scared to use it anymore. But um, uh, the people who I know who have done that mix of the blue team and red team, most of them haven't succeeded at it. The role has ended up tilting one way or the other to an extreme degree until they were entirely pen testers or entirely sock analysts. Um, I feel in some ways you really have to um, do that cross integration of fields yourself. It's really hard to build that into a job unless you work for a really small company where you're doing everything and then you can't really dig in deep to either one. Um, if you can do some like shadowing for a couple weeks with the other team, that's fantastic. But again, that's kind of your own initiative. That's not like oh, this morning I'm going to do red team and this afternoon I'm going to do blue team. No, that, that makes it too hard. There's too much depth in these fields for you to really, really be good at both. Um, even if you've been in it for like almost a decade like me, I, I can't be an expert at exploit development and differ and threat hunting and malware analysis assembly level. I can't do all of those things and be really, really, really great at all of them. I have to pick and choose what I'm going to spend four hours studying a night. And I really do spend a lot of time studying my field at night. Um, but at some point it becomes untenable. So um, my personal opinion, and I'm sorry for the long-winded response, is that you can be a purple teamer, but that is something, one of those is going to be your hobby or your part-time job. And one of them will be your full-time dedicated career. Absolutely. And the debate that I had, it was at uh, B-Sides Augusta. The gentleman I was debating with absolutely swore up and down that it was impossible for anyone to be any level of purple team, that they could be a blue teamer on a red team or a red teamer on a blue team. But there was no point of crossover. And, and I provided the argument of some of the best blue teamers I knew had been red teamers. And some of the best red teamers I knew had been blue teamers. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are truly purple per se. Yeah, their their day job is either blue team or red team. And they can bring that level of knowledge either from a previous career or from a hobby, um, from guard reserve if they choose to do that in the military. They can bring that level of expertise from somewhere else and bring it into their full-time job, which is red team or blue team. And then they are a much better red teamer or blue teamer because they have that cross knowledge um, from the other side. And that's really fundamental to being a good security person. But it's really hard to do both at the same time as your full-time job. Absolutely. So uh, do you have any final uh, pieces of advice uh, for the Sands and GIAC uh, side of things before we take a break and uh, start to discussing success in InfoSec? I think we covered it pretty well. Um, I mean, do get out there and do it. Don't necessarily scrounge $6,000 to take a Sands class if you can't do that, but look into their tuition assistance options, look into the work-study programs, reach look out. into re employer re reimbursement. And reach out to the instructors. Uh, the instructors may be able to help you to some degree uh, financially. Not Obviously, I'm not going to pay for a student to take it out of my own pocket, but 
uh, there are opportunities out there for the instructors to help motivated students. So just keep that in mind. So if you're interested in taking a course, email the instructor. They may be able to help you or talk to your employer. They may get a significant discount if they just host the training in their conference room or something. With that being said, uh, sit tight. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to tell you how to be successful in InfoSec. Stay tuned. Are you subscribed to this podcast? If not, please do so on iTunes and at advancedpersistentsecurity.net slash podcast. Attention security professionals. Have you been looking for a community of only security experts? Look no further. Peerlist is here. Peerlist helps you stay on top of the news by creating personalized feeds where you get posts from your community and blogs from top industry bloggers, all customized to your specific interests. No more email lists to discuss a topic with other experts. You can invite specific people to any discussion as well as contribute to any discussion on Peerlist. Build your reputation by creating a profile and contributing content that will help others see your expertise. The better your content is, the higher you rank. Peerlist never gives your information to any vendor. You are not a lead. You are a professional. Check out Peerlist today at peerlist.com. P-E-E-R-L-Y-S-T.com. And we're back. So at this point, we have introduced you to Leslie. We've provided some predictions for 2017. And Leslie's told us how to absolutely uh, dominate uh, your SANS training and your GIAC exams. So now, to provide some value, uh, get you started on a nice, uh, good foot in 2017, uh, we'd like to talk about success in InfoSec. So, Leslie, what advice can you provide uh, in terms of how to be successful in information security in 2017? Okay, so number one, want to be there. Want to be in InfoSec. Want to learn about InfoSec. Enough that when you go home at the end of your day, you still want to learn more about InfoSec, and you still want to work in InfoSec, because the moment that stops being fun and that you stop wanting to do it in your free time, you're, you're not going to achieve as much as you did previously. Um, that is the most critical thing. It is not the certifications or the diplomas that you've got. It is not where you've worked, um, who your references are. The most critical thing is your desire to learn because this is a job that is fast-paced and it's constantly changing. Your value as an employee is directly correlated to you sitting there at eight o'clock at night doing something involved in security and like recording a podcast like recording a podcast at eight o'clock at night um and uh you know blogging and going to cons and uh watching talks and uh participating in the community those are the things that make you a better hacker and a better infosec professional so um that's the number one most critical thing is that you have to have a desire in your gut in your heart to to be a hacker to learn how things work how to take them apart how to make them do something new that's what makes you a hacker. No piece of paper can do that. Absolutely. And one thing that I would like to to add with this, in terms of developing new information security professionals, <clears throat> I can teach you the knowledge. I can't teach you the passion and enthusiasm. If you have those two things and you're willing to learn, you will go far. You will go immensely far. So... You know, for me personally, I'll, I'll tell you basically how, how my routine goes. I write blogs for everybody and their brother. I've written for my own website, Alien Vault, Tripwire, ITSP. 
Uh, I'm working on some other stuff with some other organizations that I'm going to stay quiet about until they get published. I record podcasts. I go on other shows. I've been on PVC security. I did a mashup with PVC, defensive security, breaking down security. Uh, Amanda Berlin was there as well. I did a joint show with breaking down security. All these things relate to one thing, and it's not me tooting my own horn. It relates to the fact of I have two speeds, security and asleep. And most often when I'm asleep, guess what I dream about? Either security or smoking a cigarette. And I've been quit for over two years, so it really troubles me when I dream about smoking. Uh, without regard to that, I'm always trying to learn something new. I have a lot of virtual machines that I will, sp I will spin up. Uh, I, I use things like Metasploitable, Kali, uh, other operating systems. I've played with PFSense. I've played with uh, Alien Vault, OSIM, uh, Security Onion. You just have to tinker. Depending on your role, the... The burden is on you to learn. You're going to learn a lot in the workplace, but what you learn at home that you may not be able to directly apply initially, but down the road you can say, hey, you know, I was really working with this uh, DNS file and I see that you're having a similar problem. I ran into that at home. Here's how I fixed it. I'm hearing real, that real, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, real talk, guys so, and girls. Like, um, keep in mind there's different kinds of learners. There's audit auditory learners, there's visual learners, there's kinetic kinesthetic learners, there's um, people who like to to watch talks, to participate in labs, there's people who want to listen to podcasts, uh, some combination thereof. Find what makes you learn better. Um, me, I'm a hands-on learner. I like to do labs. I don't really like to watch videos. Um, I don't really like to sit there and, and read a book on security. I like to get out there and do things. So I do things. I Like he said, I do. I build home labs. I try out tools. I break things. I see what happens. Um, and uh, you've got to find out what works for you, but you've got to keep learning. And also, get on Twitter. I've learned so much and made so many valuable connections. Uh, obviously, uh, being able to get Leslie on the show is a, is directly proportional to my use of Twitter. So get on Twitter, follow people in InfoSec, carve out your niche, ask questions. Even the people that you think are the most untouchable are for the most part approachable. There are some that are not. I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat that. But a lot of the people that you think are untouchable are very uh, personable if you just reach out to them respectfully. Our community is amazing. Um, it's truly fantastic. We have some of the nicest people out there. Um, and uh, if you have that desire I was talking about to learn about security and learn about taking things apart, you will have find no end of friends and family in that community. Of course, there's bad people out there too. We balance a line between law enforcement and criminal organizations and security. Um, and uh, our community, for better or for worse, runs into both repeatedly. Um, black hats and white hats and gray hats everywhere in between. But our community is really extraordinary and take advantage of that. Absolutely. And one of the things I would like to recommend, and I, I learned a lot, I'm going to shout out to DC404 here, which is the Atlanta uh, DEF CON group. There's actually two. There's now a DC770. Uh, when I started at at, um, 
attending those meetings, I felt my knowledge just go through the roof because I was able to feed off of people who were just far more brilliant than me at security. And it, it challenged me to learn more. Uh, it challenged me to try to understand what they were doing. Uh, the first time I went, I watched a guy reverse engineer Lockie uh, and reverse engineer the domain generation algorithm and import the results of that into a DNS sinkhole so that he effectively uh, neutered Lockie from any command and control capabilities. And at that point, that really impressed me. Uh, but there are other groups like the ISSA, ISC Squared Chapter. Understanding ISC Squared is going to be a little bit more management focused, but it exists. OWASP uh, 2600. Uh, I've been to one uh, DC-865 meeting in Knoxville, and it, it was extraordinary. Uh, it didn't have quite the turnout of Atlanta's, but if you compare the size of Knoxville to Atlanta, you can understand why. Uh, it's a really good uh, organization. Reach out uh, and see if there's a B-Sides in your area. Uh, while living in Atlanta, I attended B-Sides Atlanta and Augusta, and being from the Knoxville area, I actually made the drive up to B-Sides Knoxville last year, and Obviously, I'm going to be living in, B in Knoxville next year uh, during B-Sides, so I will most certainly be there. Um, do that. Um, go to Iron Geek's website. He records a lot of the of the talks at a lot of the conferences. You can even just because you didn't get to go to DerbyCon doesn't mean that you're not getting to watch the talks. Just know that they exist. Um, <clears throat> and then, if you have something that some research you've been doing, submit it as a talk. Uh, work a lot on your abstract because your abstract will make you or break you, but submit to talk. Y you will learn so much through the research of putting your talk together to make sure it's factually correct that, you know, it, it's really second to none. What do you have to add to this, Leslie? Okay, so it, it seems like every talk, uh, every time I talk, I have to bring up Iron Geek. Uh, Adrian does amazing recording work. Um, and you really should be checking out the stuff on his site and on SecurityTube. Um, those talks are there for you, and um, there's more talks than you would ever be able to see in person on the internet. So go and watch them, absolutely. But do try to get to the cons, um, especially the really major ones. I don't always recommend DEF CON as a first con because it's just so overwhelming with the number of people and the parties and the middle management there and the salespeople. Um, DerbyCon is a fabulous first con. Uh, ShmooCon, if you can get there, the tickets go really, really fast. Um, GurCon, uh, Circle City Con, if you can get to one of those, those are all terrific first cons to go to and they're larger. So there's a lot more talks going on, a lot more events going on than some of the smaller B-Sides events. Um, but you know, if you've got a local B-Sides, definitely get there and get involved too, because that's a great way to network with your local community. Look for your local 2600, your, your DEF CON local group, or your city sec group. Um, those are all organizations that have chapters all over the world in medium to large size cities. Um, so get out there and look for one. And if you're interested in like digital forensics and incident response, another good group would be the HTCIA, which is the High Tech Crime Investigations Association. Uh, the FBI also runs a program called InfraGuard, which requires a background investigation to get into. But once you're in, uh, you get to interact with the FBI about cybersecurity. Yeah, I can't so say that's, enough good things about them. They're really great. It's definitely something to look at. And, you know, in terms of... B-sides, you know, they are very inexpensive. Some are free, 
Uh, some are $10, some are $20. I've never paid more than $20 to go to a B-Sides event. B-Sides Atlanta was free. B-Sides Huntsville, I think, was $10. B-Sides Knoxville, if I recall correctly, was $15 or $20. And I want to think B-Sides Augusta may have been $35 now that I'm thinking about it in retrospect. It may have been $20, though. Not entirely sure. But if, the, if there's something close to you, by all means, do it. Uh, in 2017, we're going to see DEFCON 25, which those tickets are going to go very quickly because it's the 25th anniversary. And understand that DEFCON occurs the same time as Black Hat, uh, as B-Sides Las Vegas, and now TierraCon, uh, collectively known as Hacker Summer Camp, which is also the theme of Circle City Con 2017. Uh, but just know that if you can make it out to Vegas... Uh, what I've heard, I've never made it myself, but what I've heard is you need to go at least once in your career. Once might be enough, or you might be an every year thing. Yeah. Personally, I want to make it to Vegas this year because it's number 25, but if I don't make it, the sun won't fall from the sky, or at least for that reason. Sure. But, you know, like Leslie said, though, there are numerous other smaller conferences around the country. Chicago has ThoughtCon. You have TourCon, uh, Derby, Hope, Schmoo. Hope is terrific. Hope is almost, yeah, that's a very old con, too. It is, uh, but it's only every other year, and it only occurs on even years in New yes. York City, which is put on by uh, 2600. You also have Freak Nick and Skydog Con uh, in Nashville that are good. Uh, the list just goes on. If you search information security conference online, uh, you will most certainly find your fill and then some in terms of conferences to attend. And even if you don't go to the talks, I highly encourage you to go to talks that you think are interesting. But even if you don't make it to the talks, HallwayCon is amazing as well. You will interact with people in your industry that may not have that giant name power. But you can learn so much from them. Some people have don't awesome have collaboration. name power for a reason. So keep that in mind. Some of the very, very best people in certain security fields can't be on social media for employment reasons, et cetera, security reasons. So don't just discount somebody because they don't have 25,000 Twitter followers. Um, a lot of the best people in this field do not. I only have 500. I don't have 25,000. That says nothing <laughs> about you. That says nothing hey. about your talent. It just, it, it's a totally arbitrary number. So. Oh, I, I was like, purely kidding about that. I, 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 I just I, want I, people to know, you know, like, I hate that. Like sometimes I get tagged in these posts, like most influential hackers or some stuff. Um, like Twitter is such an arbitrary thing and it has to do a lot with how you can write and how you interact with people. And uh, that's not a measure of your skill as a hacker. And uh, there's a lot of really great exploit developers and reversers working for certain industries and working on certain projects that don't allow them to be on social media. So the cons are going to be where you meet those people and you get to interact with them. Exactly. And another thing is, whether you have a formal business card or not, I highly suggest having one with nothing if nothing else, your name, email address, and phone number if you want to give out your phone number, and if you have a website, because that that's how you're going to stay in contact with people. Uh, if you use Twitter, have your Twitter handle on it, just because, you know, through the period, I went to Hacker Hall to this last year, and it was a two-day event, but I met so many people 
I couldn't even remember everybody that I met. So I ended up just swapping business cards and then I caught up with everyone later and, you know, it was a really good experience. So you, you can get business cards uh, very simple for very cheap using Fiverr and Vistaprint if you want to go that route, or you can design them yourself. It doesn't matter. And I mean, you don't have to have them, but it's a good way to allow people to stay in contact with you. I agree. Make those and, options available. Absolutely. And if you want a guest blog, uh, something I'm opening up this year on advanced persistent security, I'm going to be seeking contributors to advanced persistent security. So if you want to get your feet wet by demonstrating your knowledge on something, contact me. I'm going to make a contact form, but if you want to contact me before then, you can just email podcast at advancedpersistentsecurity.net and we can discuss you contributing to the uh, blog on advanced persistent security. So, you know, guest blogging opportunities are always uh, something that is uh, good to demonstrate your knowledge. And like me personally, my employer uh, encourages it. They, they encourage it. And then anytime I do a guest blog somewhere, they, they share it because it, it makes me look good. It makes whoever I wrote look good. And it makes whoever I wrote for look good. And it makes my employer look good. Asterisks. Uh, so asterisk to that is make sure, make sure not just with your direct manager, make sh- find the corporate policy in your company on dealing with the media and on posting blogs and on posting about work that you're doing. Find it and have it printed out and make sure that you've got a copy of anything you've signed as far as non-disclosure agreements. I've seen some really good security people get burned by posting something they thought was totally benign. Um, or doing an interview with the media that they thought was totally benign and unrelated to their work. So most companies are happy to see their employees get good PR and uh, talk about work that makes them look good, but um, make, make sure first have that in writing. Absolutely. And the caveat for me is I do work for a consulting firm now, so obviously their reputation helps them get more business. Uh, For example, I mentioned who I worked for on a different podcast and a potential client was listening to that podcast. They heard me mention this podcast. They listened to this podcast and then they emailed the owners of the company I work for and said, part of the reason I chose this company is because I like what Joe Gray had to say on the podcast, which obviously made me feel good, but uh, it definitely reinforced management's decision to allow me to continue this podcast after I came on board. It's so fabulous. it's not the case with every company, though. If you're working as a security professional in a non-security company, they may not be as forthcoming with this. So we're talking so, about developing your security career here. So it makes a kind of good segue. And I apologize for segueing. I should be segueing. Oh, absolutely. Go but, for it. Um, so some, another skill, and you know, I talked about the first and most fundamental skill when you're, when you're talking about becoming a hacker, becoming a professional hacker, an infosec professional is the desire to learn and grow your technical skills. Um, There's another skill set that you really need to be successful in this field, both blue team and red team, and that is your soft skills. And uh, that's not just uh, how to do a PowerPoint or how to write a paper, but it's also how to sell things to management and uh, how to present something as desirable in a quantifiable way to management. Um, and something like a blog or an interview with the media is something that you have to sell as beneficial to the company. Like you've seen that it's totally possible to, um, you know, um, market your work on a, on a blog as beneficial, um, 
and it worked out really well for you. Um, but you have to be able to present that in a reasonable and uh, cost quantifiable way to your company. Absolutely. And the other thing I would add as a caveat to this, when I was in the Navy, uh, there was a policy that came on board the submarine at one point that was like, anytime you come to management, your senior enlisted or the officers, if you come to them with a problem, you weren't allowed to tell them what the problem was unless you had a recommended solution. And I'm not quite so rigid about that now. But I do try to, if I identify a problem in the workplace, I try to provide uh, a root cause and a solution whenever I present it to management so that they, it can, depending on, depending on the scope, uh, it can kind of calm them down a little bit if it's something that big. And, and that's definitely a, a soft skill that goes with it and selling, you know, you need to tell people. This is why we need to. This is what we need to do. Here's why we need to do it. Here's what's going to happen if we don't do it. But at the same time, find that fine line to do it without spreading fud, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Absolutely. Because when you when you start crying wolf, you're going to lose all credibility. So keep that in mind. And a couple of things I like to recommend: you should always take public speaking classes, because the only way to get better at it is to do it. Or join uh, the, Toastmasters is great. Um, you can do that. Absolutely. Uh, or if you want to get into the B-Sides Las Vegas world, uh, you can always um, do uh, the Proving Ground, which helps out with that. But, you know, Toastmasters is universal. They're almost everywhere. Uh, you just go in, you give a talk about something, and it's critiqued. And you do it more, and you get better at it. Uh, for those people who have been listening to this podcast since the beginning – You'll know that I've gotten uh, significantly uh, better at my speaking here, but you know, at the same time, there's a lot of room for improvement with words like "but" and you know, um, so on. We're not and those are all. Th- <laughs> oh, I count when I edit. Well, I don't. I don't truly count, but I do edit. So, with that being said. Speaking more will help you improve that. And if you start giving talks, it'll help you out better with that. Uh, And then the other thing is, if you can take a technical writing course, uh, if nothing else, just at your local community college, technical college or whatever, take any technical writing courses you can, because it doesn't matter if you're red team or blue team, you're going to have to write reports at some point or another. Absolutely, you will. And they're going to be really important reports. They're going to be the vast majority of your engagement, either blue team or red team. Uh, timelining is critical in forensics, uh, writing after action reports on malware, on pen tests, uh, getting the initial paperwork done with the uh, approval to pen test and the, the rules of engagement. That's all critical for doing security work. So it's not just a matter of being able to fill out a form. It's a matter of being able to fill out a form in a coherent way and present it to the right audience. So those, that's a very critical skill set that you're going to need to learn to be a successful InfoSec professional. Another thing I would recommend uh, while talking about technical and community colleges, if you're not familiar with things like Cisco and Linux and Unix, uh, I I would highly recommend taking courses to get familiar with those. You don't necessarily need to get the Cisco certifications or the Red Hat or Linux Plus or LPIC certifications. They won't hurt you to get them, but having a working knowledge of how Cisco works and having a working knowledge of the Linux operating system in addition to Windows is immensely valuable, in my opinion. 
I won't mince words. Security can be a hard field to break into if you don't have that fundamental level of knowledge. Um, you can do it, especially if you have an intense desire to learn. But that intense desire to learn usually goes with learning those skills on your own time when you're able, when you have the resources to do it. And not everybody does, which is okay. But if you have the resources to build some kind of computer and spin up a Kali VM and poke around with it a little, you should be doing that. Before you take the certification class, before you apply for the job or the scholarship or the college curriculum, um, you, you should be trying to learn some of those fundamentals like Linux on your own. You're going to be Absolutely. at a disadvantage if you don't, especially in course. Absolutely. And there are other avenues to take as well. You could pay for something like, say, Pluralsight, itpro.tv, um, CBT Nuggets, which I think is primarily certification. So that one kind of really doesn't count. Or Cyberary, which is free for the most part. And in doing so, you can learn about how Linux works, how to do bash scripting, how to do batch scripting, PowerShell, Python, any of the above, which I'm going to touch on programming here in a moment. But you could do that to, if nothing else, if you can't afford to go to the college and take the course, you can get the certificate and say, hey, you know what? I've learned this much about Linux. I run my own Linux virtual machines. Here's the flavors I'm familiar with, and here's the completion certificate from taking the course at Pluralsight or something along those lines. That's always an option as well. But fortunately, especially in the open source community, dealing with things like Linux, most of everything is free. You can download it, spin it up in a virtual machine, play with it, tinker, do things like configure DNS, con configure DHCP, set up uh, passwords, create user accounts, delete user accounts, disable accounts, all of the above. And then when the time comes and you have that capability, do so. Because one of, the, one of the most interesting questions I've ever gotten in a job interview is, tell me about your home lab. Oh, fortunately, I, I always ask that. That's, fortunately, that's, yeah. fortunately, I had one when I was asked, but uh, it definitely uh, blindsided me. So I'm going to ask you a question, and then I'm going to tell you the answer that Jack Daniel provided me. If someone's trying to break into InfoSec, what language should they be proficient in? Well, in my opinion, they should know English or the language of their country. But um, <laughs> you mean... Okay, and that's the, that's the exact same answer that I got. You mean uh, programming language. Well, oh, I, I was... Is that what Jack said? That's funny. It, it is. And, and then he later said, well, uh, Python or PowerShell is yeah, a general Python's use good. language. Python's really good. Um, that's blue team and red team applicable. It's really good. Um, PowerShell too, especially if you're going to be red team, uh, PowerShell is really critical to use because it's that uh, living off the land, using existing tools, kind of like lateral movement tool. But uh, for both, Python's pretty good. But yeah, that's funny. Yeah, I would definitely say English first or whatever language is appropriate to speak in business in your country. Absolutely. And then if you're going to go web programming, it might be good to learn some PHP or JavaScript, maybe Node.js. And then... Um, I don't know. I don't know if Java would be a good idea, but if you're going to try to get into the RIM world, I would say probably assembly and C. Uh, what, what, can we would just you let tend Java to die? That? No, we can't let Java die. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, it depends on what you're going to be working on. If you're doing ICS, it's going to be totally different from if you're doing web applications. But um, you know, some kind of scripting language is good. You don't necessarily need to be a good coder, but being able to cludge your way in some kind of scripting language, especially a platform agnostic scripting language, is a good idea. 
and understanding how the logic works, the for, if, then, while, else, those statements, you need to know how those work. Well, I think everybody but, should know some basic assembly. Like, we of all people should know from the ground up how a computer works. It's like a car mechanic not knowing how an engine works. You know, you should you should have an idea of what's going on from the, like, the, the chip level. Uh, not in specific detail, but how does this all fit together? How does a hard drive store data, you know? That's all important to understanding everything from a fundamental level. And some of the exploits we deal with are at a very low level. So understanding from the bottom up how things work is pretty important. Absolutely. And do you have any final parting wisdom to impart upon uh, people for success in information security? When the imposter syndrome hits you, just... Um, there, I promise you that there's people who are less qualified who have gotten into this field and gotten famous and gotten rich. Do your best. Learn what you can. Keep learning and keep helping people in the community, be involved in the community, and that's the best that you can do. And you will get hit by imposter syndrome. Everybody does. You're going to wake up one day and be like, oh my God, I'm, I'm not a good enough hacker, or I shouldn't be making this much money, or oh my God, they're asking you what to do in this huge data breach and uh, what if I'm not the best expert? Everybody has feelings like that. Just keep learning, keep growing, keep advancing, keep trying to better the security space. It's almost like you read my mind. I kind of feel like I'm having that imposter syndrome right now. But uh, to quote Dory, just keep swimming. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll say goodbye. Stay tuned. Don't forget to check out our blog at advancedpersistentsecurity.net slash blog. Follow us on Twitter at ADVPersistentSEC and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash advancedpersistentsecurity. Attention listeners, have you ever been interested in recording a podcast of your own, whether it be information security, technology, cooking, or even flags. Look no further, Zencaster is here. Zencaster is a cloud-based online solution that provides each guest with a separate track. WAV files, built-in voice over IP, cloud drive integration, automatic post-production, and a soundboard for live editing. If you are interested, go to Zencaster.com, Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com, and enter coupon code APS Podcast. 20 for a 20% discount. Once again, that is Zencaster, Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com. I hope to listen to you soon. And we're back from our final break. At this point, uh, Leslie and I, uh, Leslie Carhart, Hacks for Pancakes, uh, the guest this evening, uh, we've discussed uh, predictions for 2017. We've talked about how to be successful in taking SANS courses and passing the subsequent GX certifications. And we've provided a lot of our own insight based on our experience and what we observe in industry uh, to be successful in information security. So uh, unfortunately, all great things must come to an end. And we're nearing that time with this podcast. So at this point, I'm going to turn the floor over to Leslie. Uh, at this point, I would like you to tell us how to contact you if you would like to be contacted. Uh, shamelessly plug any and everything that you would like to publish, uh, plug, and then provide any parting pieces of advice you may have. 
the floor is yours. Okay. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Um, if people want to reach me, of course, I am on Twitter. My handle is hacks for, as in the number four pancakes, hacks for pancakes. Uh, and uh, I can also be reached at Gmail, hacksforpancakes at gmail.com. And I have a blog, and the blog is tisiphony.net. Um, that's T-I-S-I-P-H-O-N-E.net. And I have quite a few blogs on the subjects that we talked about today out there. So you're welcome to peruse them and contact me if you have any questions or if you just want to banter about them. Um, and a final piece of advice, uh, be excellent to each other and party on, dudes. Party on, Garth. Um, <clears throat> so uh, with that being said, uh, this episode is coming to a close. You can follow me on Twitter at C underscore three P Joe. You can follow the podcast at ADV persist sec. Obviously the website is advanced persistent security.net. You can contact us at podcast at advanced persistent security.net. Uh, we have a Slack channel, APS dash open source dot, uh, sign up dot team. We also have APS dash podcast, which is primarily just the podcast, uh, the open source projects, we've got a lot of uh, discussion about Python projects, uh, Raspberry Pi projects, and OSINT social engineering stuff going on there right now. Uh, aside from that, uh, I really don't have anything else to add of value. So until next time, stay secure. Thank you for listening to the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast. Until next time, stay secure and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast.